Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. did an incredible job of emphasizing putting your best 11 players on the field for every situation and being really critical about what that means to truly have your best 11 out there. They were also willing, as you just mentioned, to break a lot of norms to accomplish them. On today's episode, we talked to a guy who is Princeton Tigers through and through, the offensive coordinator at Princeton, Mike Wills. Mike, it's great to have you here. Keith, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk ball. So, Coach, I mentioned you're a Princeton Tiger through and through. You've really only had the college experience, both as a player and a coach, at Princeton. Talk us through real quick what that progression has been for you. Sure. So I was fortunate enough to get recruited to Princeton by our still head coach, Bob Serace, in his first cycle as a head coach. So he got hired from the Cincinnati Bengals in the fall, winter of my senior year when I had yet to make a decision. I was excited about being recruited in the Ivy League. I had been recruited by the previous staff, in fact, and a couple of guys like Coach Steve Verbit who were held over from the previous staff by Coach Serace and, and continuously promoted. And I immediately fell in love with his vision for the program, that he wanted to create the best student-athlete experience in the United States, that he wanted to play a fast and physical brand of offense, which as an offensive lineman really appealed to me. And I was excited to play for a guy in addition to all the other incredible assistants I got to work with who would emphasize the development of offensive linemen at, at one of the nation's best universities. And we've been fortunate to be the number one school in the country, according to U.S. News, 11 years in a row. So I had a great experience playing for him. Uh, we went from one of the struggling programs in the country to a team that set a bunch of records on offense my senior year and won a league championship. I got to play and be around some great players and coaches. While I was in college, I had thought that I was going to follow a more typical Princeton path and maybe touch sports through sports administration. Got to have a cool internship in the NFL league office. That and some Princeton connections led to a job as a, a legal assistant at a great sports law firm in New York City called Proskauer Rose. For a, and I got to work directly with one of uh, Coach Race's teammates, a Princeton football player by the name of Rob Freeman. And as soon as I sat down in that desk, I felt like I had what I've often referred to as like the quarter-life crisis, where <laughs> in the absence of football, in the absence of competing for the first time in my life, or at least competing through football, I realized how desperately I missed the game. So I tried to convince myself for five to six months, then be present where I was and attack my job. But I just missed it. And I remember at one point turning to my two roommates who were both former Princeton players. And I just asked them, I said, do you guys find yourself like checking Ivy league football scores when, if you're working on Saturday and do you draw plays on napkins and like, is it all you can still think about? And they were like, no, uh, we love Princeton football, but you know, we've, we've kind of moved on. We're into the real world. And so I knew I had to try to break into football. I was trying to network at as many places as possible with as many different people, which Coach Race was helping me with. And then at the 13th hour, where I thought it was quite possible I was going to have to work for another year before getting a chance to coach, a defensive quality control position opened at Princeton. And Coach Race offered it to me. I immediately accepted. And that started me on the journey I've been on now. 
I've had a bunch of amazing mentors here at Princeton who I'm happy to talk about at length. I moved from defensive quality control to coaching the tight ends after my first season. During my time coaching the tight ends, I was promoted to assistant head coach and recruiting coordinator at different points. And then eventually I got the chance to become the offensive coordinator. This is going to be my second season actually calling it because my first year was really a redshirt year when the Ivy League didn't play during COVID, but my third season in the chair. I think I have the best job on planet Earth. I have an incredible boss. I get to work with great players and coaches every day. I'm very fortunate to be where I am, and I, I think whatever success I've been able to experience is a byproduct of the players, mentors, and other fellow coaches who I get to work with every day. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at. That's a great story, and I've never heard anybody refer to it as the quarter-life crisis, but I think it's come up quite a few times on this podcast where guys have had plans to do other things out of college and then end up back in football because they love it so much. And you did mention your mentors, and and obviously those guys are uh, guys who are at Princeton or have been at Princeton. And in in looking at them and how you've been able to develop as a coach, and you know, very very young coach still, but uh, the lessons you've learned from those guys who've really impacted who you've become as a coach today. Yeah. So in college, the people I spent the most time with on a day to day basis were Bob who was an incredible head coach, had a great vision for the program. I learned what it was like, even as a player, to have conviction in your vision in the face of adversity. We went uh, one and nine, two years in a row to start our college career. And while, of course, he tweaked things and grew, he stayed committed to the vision that he had held from his first day, and it paid off for him. And I was incredibly impressed by that as a player. Uh, James Perry was my offensive coordinator in college and also the first offensive coordinator I got a chance to, to work with, both in the office and as a player. I learned what it was like to be a truly creative football coach and to be unafraid to take risks. Uh, In addition to being an incredible teacher and play caller, James remains the most creative football coach I've ever been around. And I think when you study all the places he's been, including the way he lights up on offense at Brown uh, in the past season, he does an incredible job. And I was very fortunate to learn from him as a player and a coach from Eddie Morrissey, who was my college position coach for all four years, which is a cool experience to play for the same three guys for four straight years. I gained an incredible foundation in offensive line play, and I gained intensity. He is a very hands-on, demanding uh, football coach, but he also puts his arm around you and lets you know that he cares as you continue to build and earn trust with him. And I loved learning from him, and he remains someone who I stay in touch with, along with those other two guys, very, very, very frequently. Then as I progressed as a coach, I had played O-line, but when I got, I got dropped into the tight ends job uh, two days before spring ball. And I had not spent a lot of time thinking about the pass game in my, in the infancy of my coaching career. Cause I was working with the defensive line as a defensive quality control coach. And I had played O-line. Uh, I owe a lot of the thanks to Dennis Goldman, who was the longtime wide receivers coach at Princeton, who I would submit has the greatest resume of any Ivy League receivers coach at all time. He had one recruiting class that produced two different NFL wideouts, now tight ends, and a third guy who became a fourth-round draft pick with one other scholarship offer out of high school. Uh, He was an incredible teacher, uh, taught me a lot technically, helped me understand how different schematics and techniques connect to each other, and I owe him a great deal. Andy Orrick became the offensive line coach after Eddie Morrissey left, and Eddie is now the O-line guy at Marshall, continued to gain a foundation in offensive line play from him. And then when he became the offensive coordinator, he was the most recent one before me, I learned what it was like to to, uh, be able to delegate, to be very firm in what you knew, and to be willing to learn from and gather opinions from everyone else on staff and to trust people to be experts in their own field while being sure about what you do know. 
And then Sean Gleason has been an incredible mentor to me. He became the offensive coordinator after James Perry left and before Andy was here. I also got to work. He was on staff when I was a player as the running backs coach my senior year. And I got to spend a lot of time with him before he became the offensive coordinator when he was the running backs coach and special teams coordinator. And I was the tight ends coach. Sean is creative. He is, he is awesome with the players. He's an incredible motivator and he's remains the most organized football coach you've ever been around. And I learned what it was like to really build a year long workflow for an offensive staff. And in particular, how to really set expectations in a game week so that everything is a well-oiled machine and everyone is on the same page. So all of those guys were, were, have been tremendous mentors to me. And that's just on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Jim Salgado, who was the defensive coordinator when I was a defensive intern, who's now at the Buffalo Bills, incredibly smart, creative, passionate football coach. Steve Verbit, I was his intern when I was working with the defensive line, taught me what it was like to not just grow as a football coach, but to grow off the field. He's our senior associate head coach and handles so many different things in fundraising and career development for our players that both enriches your experience as a coach and also makes you more valuable as an assistant trying to execute the mission of your head coach. And there are other guys who I haven't mentioned, but those guys off the top of my head have been have played a pivotal role in my growth at Princeton and my growth as a coach. Well, I'm excited. We do have Coach Morrissey coming on here next week, so I'm sure we'll get a little Princeton football there. Now, one of the things you mentioned right off the bat was the, the creativity side. And I know personally as a coach, I think Princeton football got my attention somewhere around 2013 or so using three quarterbacks and I thought wow that that's a really neat use of personnel of your players and I know we're going to get into players formations and, and plays here in a little bit but talk to us a little bit more about just learning that creativity right that's not necessarily something you see all the time especially you know in, in younger coaches that I think that's an important aspect of it though that you can be creative within a, a system that you have. Well, James, Bob, and Eddie uh, as guys, and Dennis as guys who are all probably together deserve a lot of credit as the architects of what has become and grown as the Princeton offense. They did an incredible job of emphasizing putting your best 11 players on the field for every situation and being really critical about what that means to truly have your best 11 out there. They were also willing, as you just mentioned, to break a lot of norms to accomplish that. So some football tropes that I've learned to not take quite as seriously just based on the experience of the mentors and successes they have you know if you have more than one quarterback you have none that's been patently untrue here uh, James was awesome at playing as many as three in different games from the 2012 through really 2016 season during his time here it worked really well for us it allowed him to grow both a trick play package but also to dress up simple concepts in unique ways and allow our guys to execute against simpler defenses I know a lot of Offensive line coaches do a great job playing their core five and maybe rotating one swing guy through. We've had years where we've consistently played 10 offensive linemen in a game, including in 2016, we used to full hockey sub the offensive line multiple times within the drive if we thought it suited a plan and allowed us to get a new 11 out there, play some younger players, a running quarterback, all these different things that I've, you know, I, it works for us. I won't say it's the right way to do it. It's just the way we've done it at Princeton. But that's another trope that has disappeared and allowed us to be creative. And I think that what the creativity, particularly with your personnel, allows you to do is it allows you to keep everyone engaged in the plan 
because you can have a large number of people who have a really significant job on game day. There's a running quarterback who has a package that he's excited about. There's a young receiver who knows he's going to have to do these three things in the game and it keeps him engaged. There's a backup tackle who's really excited because he knows he's going to play more than likely two full series in the first half and he knows exactly when he's coming and that keeps guys dialed in. Uh, schematic creativity I think was an extension of that. And again, a lot of the credit goes to uh, James, especially early on for all that innovation. I'd be lying if I said I had any role in creating that, but it was certainly fun to play in it and then to learn it coaching with him and have the ability to execute it. You know, we, in 2016, our backup quarterback was the player of the year in the Ivy league. He never started a game, but he ran for 20 rushing John Lovett, who was still the best player I've ever gotten to be around. He ran for 20 touchdowns. He threw for 10 and he caught one and he had seven in one game, including uh, one of each kind. I don't know if there's many backup quarterbacks who have ever won a player of the year trophy without starting a game, but he was both our goal line quarterback and open field quarterback who would sub in and he played H back on a lot of our possessions. So instead of, you know, 12 personnel, we were in 11 Q and he was able to touch the ball in really unique ways and affect defenses. And I think that, yeah, just circling back that personnel and schematic creativity, the willingness to be brave in that stuff and have conviction about what you believe in and keep everyone engaged in the game plan is certainly something that I strive to emulate. And I think the guys I work with every day, uh, Mark Rosenbaum, Brian Flynn, Brandon Cuevas, Chris Arkoski, and our quality control coaches, AJ Gallagher and Cody Smith, they do an incredible job of bringing fresh ideas to the table so that we never get stale. You know, there, there's a certain aspect of being able to find all those roles and then actually use them within the, the course of a game or a course of a season where those guys are, are finding their way onto the field, where you take that depth chart and you lose its verticality, right? They, it looks very horizontal because this group's going in and this these guys have a role here. You know, you mentioned the hockey sub uh, with your offensive line. You, you know, that has a huge, huge, huge impact on culture, right? Whether it's intentional or not, an engaged guy is going to buy in a lot quicker than the guy who maybe doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the emphasis on playing the best 11 in every situation empowers guys to be the MVP of a role and to carve out a niche. You know, we've been a team that in different seasons has really believed in 13, 14, and you know, even 05 personnel on the goal line. So there might be a couple of tight ends who don't play quite as much in the open field, but are going to be on the field for the absolute most critical snaps of the game, you know, six to 10 times a game and goal line and short yardage. There are receivers who understand that they're in, in certain sets and get to take real ownership of a job. And it also connects back to like our offense's fundamental identity, which is to be fast and physical and the non-negotiable being our tempo in the way we play uh, and wanting to attack the line of scrimmage. The more guys who you have ready to fill different roles and the more ways you can tie a call sheet together as a staff so that you're running similar flexible concepts out of a 11, 12, 13, 14, 11 Q, whatever it might be. It allows you to have flexibility on game day to adjust to injury, to adjust to who's playing well, to adjust to the way the defense is playing you. And uh, also to ideally wear teams out within the scope of the game by playing more guys than they're willing to play and, you know, trying to snap the ball as often as possible so that you can win the conditioning battle because there's so much you can't control for in a football season and in a football game and trying to be the most the best conditioned team and ultimately play the hardest for the longest is really important to what we do amen i, I know it's something 
that the staff I worked with, uh, when I was offensive coordinator at, at Baldwin Wallace, we we used that similar approach. And you know, we would tell our guys like, if you're a starter in a personnel grouping, you're a starter, period, right? And and they they love that. They really took ownership in it. And we tell them all the time like, your your job as your unit, your personnel group, man, guys, go out and fight and, and get more time for that group on the field by excelling in it. And you know, it just raised the level of execution. And the other thing that we saw too is uh, more and more and more, which I think is important as you, you know, you're, you're running a multiple offense and installing things is these guys were just coaching each other up, right? It, it just turned from, you know, what we saw a few years prior, uh, where was, there was that more vertical depth chart where everybody was just trying to get their own to now this, this spirit of working together, which is so important on offense like you said i mean with injury you're you're covered you know with different situations in the game whatever it might be finding those guys who do play in certain roles and it's really i think as a coach it's it's uh looking at it you know you mentioned creativity just from a little bit of a creative eye too like what do we really need what are the skill sets we need in certain areas of the field so our guy who you know at 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 BW was the fastest man in in the NCAA or or in division three you know ran uh, or was the uh, All-American in the 100. Uh, that guy was great open field, but he was a little bit shorter. And so as field space just appeared in the red zone, his speed wasn't as much of a factor to the defense where that guy who was a, a bigger guy and could go up and get a jump ball maybe wasn't the, the speed demon that that other guy was. But man, that was a great place for him. And he could be a physical blocker out there too where we were more likely to run the football. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I, I think you're spot on, Coach. And I think the the twig you're always trying to bend a little bit in training camp, especially is building that camaraderie and that belief that you can carve out a role while also fostering competition in as many places as possible. And, you know, it's something that when we transition from a unit meeting to a tight end meeting, for example, I'm always harping on, you know, in our position room, uh, because I also coach the tight ends that you're not just competing against the other tight ends. You're competing with how many jobs can you do well, that a slot receiver who's more suited to maybe 11 or 10 personnel jobs can't, you know, like we're trying to find the guys who can do the most things well. And those are the guys, particularly in the open field who are going to play. And when you see the way we've played on offense and how we vary between, you know, our run pass bounce or our usage of 12 personnel versus 11 personnel versus 21 or 11 Q, whatever it might be. uh, The goal is just to have the best guys on the field who can do the most jobs and, stress defensive structures, defensive matchups, and defensive coordinators as much as humanly possible. And we're going to be very honest with the guys about what we're looking for in core competencies in their position and also what we're looking for as an offense and whether or not they're giving it to us at that particular time. And because we want to play, it comes back to that original philosophy. We're going to play the 11 best guys in every situation. Taking that and, you know, looking where we're at right now, this time of the year, the, the prep for camp, going into camp, uh, especially in terms of the installation. I know you shared with me before we got going your approach to that, and we've, we've heard all kinds of ways of doing it, from that fast-paced three-day install to the, the team that takes the whole camp to install it, and you referred to yourself as uh, using a, a medium type of install plan. Talk to us about what that means to you. 
Sure. So that means that, first off, it starts with how our head coach, Bob Saray, sets the tone for training camp in terms of growing from becoming masters of your job with an awareness of situational football, particularly the most common situations like third down or the high red zone or whatever it might be, to and, and the concepts that we're going to run in the open field and in those areas all the way towards the areas of the field that you have to be great in, but that you might not actually experience in any particular game, like goal line. We take a lot of pride in goal line, but you will play a couple of games every year where you don't snap the football inside the three. And so your plan for that segment of the field has to be good, and your kids have to have an understanding of it, but they, it might not come up every week as critical as it is. So our first six days are going to get in the vast majority of the plays we are going to run in the most common situations and of course in the open field you know first and second down with with with, with most of the field remaining uh, or third and go which you know i'm sure we'll talk about later but you alluded to talking about fourth down decision making and when that changes and how we operate the first three days are going to get in our core run and drop back pass concepts with some play action complements the fourth day for us is going to be less about new concepts and more about turning on the faucet formationally. So showing the guys how we can tweak the base concepts that they've already been installed by utilizing a lot of different formations. Then we're going to use five and six to get in our complementary run game, our you know third and fourth core runs, and our and a lot of our in-pocket downfield play action game. Install seven, depending on when we decide to focus on the low red zone and goal line, we'll likely focus on a lot of those specialty plays. Eight through 10 will be very complimentary things to what we've already put in and a smaller amount each day. And then we do leave a lot of room at the end of training camp to both tweak what we've already run, uh, revisit it because there's no substitution for repetition. And you do want to make sure you have time on task and different concepts. You want to be analyzing what your players run well and focusing on that. And, you know, especially I think in certain segments of the field where you can, depending on the comfortability of your quarterback, where you can get in a few unique pass plays that maybe you will not install in training camp if your team is struggling with what you run in the core. But if you feel like there's a little bit of mastery or at least above average execution of what you've already had in, you have the ability to sprinkle in some wrinkles that maybe would be a part of a game week because you know there's three defenses that play a certain way and it's a solid call when you're getting a certain defense 80% of the time. But we'll get it in in practices 10, 11, 12, you know, 15, 20. And then, of course, as you cross the 20 mark, you're likely starting to focus on playing your first game and this whatever soft game plan you've already created and then refining that once you have final analysis and as updated opponent video and scouting report information as you can possibly have. But yes, I think in, in what I've been fortunate enough to observe, it's a medium sized install, if that makes sense. Though we certainly, I don't know if it feels medium to a freshman, uh, if that makes <laughs> sense. The formation, yeah. the, the formation, the formations and the pace of which things can go in can certainly feel a little bit fast. That's also why we focus on being year-round teachers and talking football year-round. There are obviously times where we're going to be doing much less of that for various reasons, but we do try to go through the installation, you know, in training camp, uh, in the winter, before spring football, and in a very slowed-down way and focusing on the ways you know you're the younger players in your group need to, row, need to grow or need to have it repeated. And then, of course, in spring football, making small tweaks every time because the heart of our install – as much as it's important to find the, you know, to find your best 11 players, right? The plays they're good at and as many formations as possible, you can run it out of while keeping conceptual learning. The other, the, our install is really designed around our teaching progression as an offense. And we probably take the most pride more so than what we run in how we layer that teaching 
to allow our guys to carry a big toolbox, which they can then whittle down during a game week. And as we discussed before the call, move from best 11, what plays they run, how many formations can you run it out of from a training camp or spring ball perspective where you're not trying to beat your defense, you're trying to grow to in a game plan week, who are your best 11 for each situation, what formations are going to get you the structures and calls you want and create the most common matchups that you want. And then within those formations, what plays can you run? The players formation plays I mentioned to you, uh, Brian Flynn, Mount Union guy, all those guys speak that language. It, it certainly comes from Hall of Fame coach Larry Karras, who those guys really grew up learning the game from. And you mentioned in camp, though, in the install, it's it's players, plays, formations. And, you know, I, I paused and thought about that, you know, as much as I tried also to learn from Coach Karras, and I had seen him talk about that before I became a college coach, uh, that really that's what the install really is, is, is you are going to find those plays that are going to work for you. And then, especially as we talked about using all our different personnel groups, then finding out where those those um, different players then fit in certain formations and in certain situations as well. Talk to us about the difference of that and then how that approach changes once you get into in-season in your game planning. Yeah, so I think you had asked when are the times that you would slow things down, maybe turn off the faucet. And I think those first six practices, whether we take a pause here or there and maybe lengthen it to eight days to give the guys a day off is a decision we can make at any point and do talk about in spring ball and training camp, depending on how things are going. I think the way that we'll slow things down for the players if they're struggling with mastery or execution is we'll really limit the sets we run it out of. So if you look at the difference, maybe that we're running things with the ones or twos in training camp versus the threes or even fours, the freshmen and the developmental players on our team, the formations will be very simple and predictable that we're going to run things out of and it might be much more unique so we might be running four verticals you know five different ways into practice with the ones and only running it out of a simple two by two or three by one formation with the freshmen for a very long time you know they're going to run it out of these very 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 simple predictable and easy to understand looks where it changes in the season is once we've hopefully started to figure out who our best 11 are is there's a focus on in each in the open field and then in each segment what formations we think or motions or uh, whatever it's going to be tempos are going to allow us to create the most predictable looks for our players or if not the most predictable we think can at least put the most pressure on the defense to make them uncomfortable and then within that structure what plays can we run? And that, I think, is a really, really important difference. And, of course, you're still limited by what your players are doing well and how well you can teach it. So if there's a forma- if there's a really funky formation that we think is awesome, but we don't know if we're, we're going to play, you know, a, fr- a sophomore tight end, a freshman receiver, and a junior with not as much experience, well, we might sacrifice the what we think is clearer schematic advantage to get them in a position where they're comfortable to execute, if that makes sense. So that changes year to year and week to week as well. And in this process, you mentioned you're going to get into making this about situational mastery. The game's always played in context. So while we might be a little bit vanilla with that early on uh, for you, how do you really get these players to understand the situations going on in the game. So they're not out there just running plays all the time, that they understand how this is working too with down and distance, place on the field, even time on the clock. 
So in the off season and in training camp, we will actually have both myself and different position coaches on offense present to the group on a day that we're going to focus on it in practice, what our core philosophy is in different situations, just like they'll understand what the core philosophy of our offense is and why we run certain plays or believe in certain principles early on. They're also going to understand what in each segment, whether it's third and short, third and medium, short yardage, goal line, high red zone, low red zone, or other situations that you two minute, other things you come up with year to year that you want to emphasize. What are our base beliefs that we're going to operate out of and what are the more common plays and formations that they would and types of plays play families that they would typically expect obviously in a game plan week there will be very few surprises in that hopefully we're running the plays that we've practiced unless there's an incredibly different defensive structure that's presented to us on game day by a creative or crafty defensive staff but in training camp we'll talk about the base plays we like to run why we like to run them and why we're building them that way. Like, what are the, obviously you're going to have certain plays that you believe are quote unquote good against everything. But I also think particularly with veteran players, it can be really helpful to help them understand what are the more common defenses you see and why are you trying to, why why is our offense built a certain way in its core beliefs and core formations, whether that's attacking even versus odd fronts, what's more common in your conference or a higher percentage of man coverage in a certain segment historically, or this, that, and the other thing I think can be really helpful for your guys and empower them to solve problems on the field and understand when we're in the perfect look and when they might have to manage an imperfect look for us, which is obviously when the great players really shine is fixing problems that, that, you know, unfortunately I put them in because I'm, I'm not going to be perfect and our staff isn't going to be perfect. You alluded to the fourth down decision-making and, and before we got going, I told you uh, your receivers coach, Brian Flynn was one of the first ones I think I've talked to on this podcast about analytics when he was at Villanova. I'll link that one in the show notes and he introduced me to coach Rob Ash or championship analytics and uh, that, that definitely has become a topic we talk about often here on the podcast. But that fourth down decision-making, how that works into, again, that situational mastery for your players, as well as getting ready for that as, as coaches, right? Because I think things change in your thought process. I know things change in your thought process when you're going to have that extra down. So, Talk to us about your, your approach as that as the offensive coordinator, but also with your team and helping them understand overall, here's what we're trying to accomplish. So when, first off, as a staff, we're always evaluating year to year whether the way we are treating those segments and the plays we're calling are effective relative to what we're trying to get. So I think it's actually helpful to reverse engineer it from the game week a little bit and then how how that extends into our off-season philosophy. So our head coach does an unbelievable job managing this for our whole team during the game week. He's interfacing directly with our staff to talk about the parameters we're setting for the game for the game week and also partnering with championship analytics as you kind of alluded to to talk about some of those things and tweak our the game book they present you every week that gives you a framework for decision making based on our own beliefs based on championship analytics beliefs there's a lot that i've learned from and continue to learn from brian flynn he does an unbelievable job coaching our receivers working with our entire offense and he is especially good analytically in those situations. So he actually holds a meeting for our offensive staff on Thursday mornings where he takes us through the game book and he also pulls out uh, examples that championship analytics has sent us and that he has seen 
of poor decision-making or great decision-making situationally so that we as a staff are growing our IQ during the year and learning from things that have happened in that week so that we're not repeating some of those same mistakes or we're growing as a staff. So by Thursday, we understand those parameters really clearly. And then on Saturday, our head coach is navigating that book with the help of a quality control coach or intern who's staying in his hip pocket. And he's letting me know on every earned first down what the parameters would be to go for it on fourth down, which, as you alluded to, can change my behavior and the behavior of our staff and how we're going to treat certain segments of third down. And we also know as a staff in the game plan week what segments and what parts of the field we might behave exactly like you'd expect and treat it like third down or when we're going to treat it like second down and what parts of the call sheet we'll be willing to work off of, whether we'll take a shot, run the ball, do a, throw a screen, do a certain thing to put us in an advantageous position to convert or be in a go for it on fourth down position. And those are really, really important. And that starts with our head coach, who's awesome, Brian Flynn, who's awesome, and our whole, our whole staff buying into it. In terms of educating our players, when we talk about third down in our very first meeting with them, we give them clues as to what parts of the field and what distances to the sticks are going to be more likely. Mark Rosenbaum does a great job working with our quarterbacks to help build situational awareness in those segments. And I work to build the awareness of the whole unit in those spots so that they develop an expectation that's built in about segments of the field and distances to the sticks that are going to be more likely to see a play call that they might not expect. Because we, we can all admit, generally speaking, you're usually throwing to convert as you get into the longer the third down gets, but there are parts of the field where that will not be true for us. And I think we hopefully do a good job of growing our guys' situational football IQ and situational mastery throughout the year and especially in training camp so that they expect those situations. And we'll be very direct with them about when they should expect it in a game week, particularly during the final Friday unit meeting. But I think it's easy to see how aggressive we are on fourth down and and in the way we treat third down when you watch us play. And that starts with our head coach, and I think our, our staff and our players do a great job of embracing that and, and you know using it as an advantage. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with us, the, the process for it. We could look at Kevin Kelly, who's made a living on just going for it on fourth down, never, you know, never punts, and say, well, we're going to adopt that. But you know that, that could backfire really quick. I mean, you do have an understanding, and I think what's best is, as you've highlighted there, that there's a process for it, that there is that staff meeting that that Coach Flynn runs, that um, you as the play caller have this tool. I imagine, you know, now early on in your career as a a play caller, this has been instrumental in helping you to make good decisions and to understand, to better understand what you want to call as opposed to if you didn't have this tool. Yeah, and the really great part of it is that obviously everything stems from our head coach, Bob Strace, and we're going to do what he wants us to do. Uh, but he not only does he give us a lot of autonomy during the game week within his parameters to you know build and execute a game plan, but he also sticks to his guns. So it's easy to be really excited about going for it on a fourth down when you're playing your best game of the year and every call looks awesome and you're converting third and nines and you know yeah sure keep it keep it rolling, but he will continue to to turn that faucet on and follow the parameters he has set for the game week even when the going is tough and if he ever deviates from it he'll explain to you in real time or especially the day after in our staff meeting exactly what he was thinking and why whether it was a game situation that was different than we expected or the weather or whatever it might be 
he's extremely thoughtful about it, even when he deviates from the script that he set. And uh, that's so helpful for me, and that, that's why he's an unbelievable head coach to get to coach under. Coach Willis, I really appreciate you taking time and, and allowing us a look into and some of the insight you've given us on install and how that works all the way into the season. And, you know, looking at everything you do as a coach, what would be the one thing, though, on or off the field, outside of what we talked about here even, that you feel really gives your players the winning edge? So I think we do a great job, uh, and starts with Bob and the guys I work with are incredible at it, of marrying what we do on the field, the plays we call the techniques, the techniques we use with our fast and physical offense and our belief that we are going to have a vertical run game and a vertical pass game. The plays that we run are built around that verticality in the run game. That's, of course, we attack the perimeter. We do take a lot of pride in trying to win the A-gap, work out from there, be ruthlessly efficient and physical in our run game. And then we're going to take shots in the pass game. And if we get the matchups, coverages, et cetera, we're going to try to end the drive with an explosive play. That's evident, I think, when you watch us play, particularly in this past season. And we encourage our kids to understand in that cycle of the snap that they're going through that we are – committed to taking shots and you can see some of the games we've played where it's gone really well and that's easy everyone can feel good about taking risks when the risks are paying off but I think you can also study the games we've played and tight games that we've played where you know our plan to take shots has not worked quite as well but we've remained committed to it and ultimately been able to convert enough of them to win the game uh, in the pass game so being committed to that downhill run game uh, that vertical run game that vertical pass game our up-tempo, uh, no-huddle offense, and pushing that tempo to warp speed as often as humanly possible, and building trust with our kids that we're committed to that identity and that we're going to stick to it when the going gets tough. That doesn't mean we're ignoring new information, by the way. We'll tweak what we're running if it's not working. But our identity does not change, even if some of the techniques and plays week to week, year to year, might change to give our players an edge. And I think that that's important i think we're honest with our players about what we're trying to do and i think uh, our head coach stays really committed to it i try to stay really committed to it as well and it's an important part of our success is marrying our culture offensively with what we run and sticking to our guns even when it's not going perfectly coach great stuff here today for our listeners who want to follow what you do and connect with you certainly maybe interact with you in the in the next off season what's the best way to connect with you so i am on twitter at coach M as in Mike Willis, and I can also be reached by email at mikewillis at princeton.edu. If you reach out to me, and my DMs are open, if you reach out to me on both of those channels, I'm positive I will follow up, and if I'm not responding to you, please feel free to continue to blow up my email inbox if I miss it for some reason when I'm with my family or recruiting or whatever it might be, but I'm always eager to talk ball, and uh, Keith, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I hope I hope you got something out of it. It was really fun for me to get to talk ball. Well, thank you again, Mike, and best of luck to you and the Princeton Tigers in 2022. Thanks, Keith. Have a, have a great rest of your summer, man. Talk soon.